0: This is Rafael. Hi, I'm Lauren. We're the Pacheco siblings, and welcome to the Hypercube Podcast, a talk show in which two siblings converse about anything and everything. Okay, so we were just talking before—I would say before we were recording here, but we were talking while recording. Yeah. So I don't know. Maybe y'all heard that. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. We'll see, we'll see it what, ends what up makes in it the into edit. the edit. But. We were just talking shop about the behind the scenes production about this, and it was getting very you're, argumentative. You're getting very heated about clap syncs, Yeah. And how we don't need them when we go to record remotely. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but it would be better if we had it. All right. Let's put this conversation to bed now. <laughs> okay. Conversation. It's, it's night. night, let's, night time. let's table it. Let's table. it. All right. What else is up? <laughs> um, so between the last episode and this episode, I watched the 500th episode of The Holy Post podcast. Oh, yeah. Where I you made a brief appearance. Featuring you. Very brief. Very briefly. But that's a really good episode. That's a, or I mean, it's a really good, you know, just overall podcast episode because, like you said, big summary. They're just talking about stuff they had already talked about before. So they all had things to say already. Exactly. And it was yeah. just very, very structured. I don't know if it's normally that structured. It's usually fairly structured. But, yeah, not so much that yeah, much. Um, it, at least. Not on their kind of freeform segments, right? But yeah, I mean, I've been raving to you about that podcast for some time now, so I'm glad you kind of finally got to listen to an episode. It's pretty good. It's pretty good. It took me a couple of minutes to realize Phil Vischer is the host, like yes. the main host. He's on the left. Yes. It took me a little bit to realize his like his style of sarcasm. Oh yeah, he has a very peculiar sense of humor. I love. It. I love it. He's once on- I figured it out, like I was listening, to I was like. Is he serious? Okay, he's not serious. Okay, fantastic. I can get on board with this. I like this guy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he is, oh, he is so genuinely funny. Yeah. Like, he he actually cracks me up. Like, not like pity cracks me up. Like, actually cracks me up. <laughs> yeah, he's pretty funny. He's pretty funny. <laughs> yeah, genuinely funny guy. Genuinely funny. Yeah, and the, um, I don't remember all their names, but the younger one, the 10-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the one that they joke about how young she is. That, That's Caitlin Chess. Caitlin, yeah. She is surprisingly insightful. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And she talks really fast. Really fast. Okay, so I was watching at one point five speed, and every time she talked, every now and then I have to go back and go, "What the heck did you just say?" No, yeah, I'm just, I'm just waiting for her to drop a rap album or right? something. That's a problem. I feel like our generation talks a lot faster. You um, think so? Is that an endemic We're pretty, thing? we're pretty verbose. I believe is the right word. But I want to say there was a study that showed that like later generations. I don't remember how it went, but at some point people started to use more words. The problem is, I think with our generation, we're also raised on edited media, like that's heavily true. edited media. So we expect to talk in efficient cuts. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I mean, and I think to a certain extent, there's probably also a connection with industrialization and right. with the mass production of the education system, essentially. Yeah. And of course, that has many drawbacks, which we critique oftentimes. I don't know if we have it on this podcast yet, but we will eventually. We will. Doubt. We will. We um, will. <laughs> Of course, that has many dropbacks that we tend to critique, but it also has the benefit of like basically making the world into a level of literacy now, of widespread literacy that never yeah. before existed. Uh, it, the, the baseline literacy is much higher. Much, much higher. Much, much higher. Um, and that's just one of those things that we sort of take for granted, is that pretty much everybody can read and write yeah. and do things like that nowadays. And because of that, even though not everybody speaks particularly well, everybody mm-hmm. speaks probably overall better right. than before. So that's just one of those repercussions. I imagine a lot of the verbosity, if you were to measure that <laughs> over time, would be linked closely to yeah. know, the uh, industrialization and the rise of our current form of education. Yeah. the public find, education. I have to find that study again because I, I talked about it in high school in one of like I think in our English class or or is it our social studies class? I don't remember. But yeah, we, for sure. If you find yeah. it just send me a link so I could drop it in the show notes. Yeah. It's something to do with younger generations speaking more. Yeah. Well, Caitlin Chess certainly speaks more. Yeah. And and the other thing on top of that is I can't say anything about her, but I watch everything at at least 1.5 speed. So now in my head, that's how people talk. And that's how I expect myself to talk as well, which is a problem because I am also a recovered stutterer. So I trip myself up sometimes going like, oh, get slow down. You don't need to talk at 1.5 speed in real life. (laughs) You, yeah, and you were never trained out of stuttering, not right? formally. Not formally. Not formally. I basically, Cause... well, just like with everything else in my life, it was something that I taught myself just because I realized it was a deficiency that I had. It was literally and an impediment. It was literally an impediment of the speech variety. And I taught myself how to control the, it's a weird tick. I don't know how to explain what that feels like if you've never had a tick before, but being caught in a stutter is a very interesting sensation to be physically unable to say the word that you want to say. Mm, yeah, yeah, I'd imagine. But yeah, I, I eventually just learned to, I, I guess, kind of do meditation, uh, how to train myself and train the nerves that result in speaking to not hiccup and get caught. Right. Yeah, that's very interesting. Because I know, yeah, I know a lot of people who are stutterers get, uh, there's a, there are like programs and yeah. what have you for formal training to unlearn your stutter essentially yeah and that's very fascinating and i know a lot of people who for example go into the performing arts find that performance is something that like eliminates their stutter and that's it, yes. kind of the beginning of their journey so of training it out yeah so part of the from what i learned in the process of recovering from stuttering and in just learning what a stutter is a lot of the reasons a stutter happens is because your brain is trying to catch up with the physical action of speaking so if you're speaking from script and all the words are already planned ahead of you, it's a lot easier to just say the words yeah. as opposed well, to trying to come up with the words on the spot. And that activates an entirely different part of your brain, yeah. reading aloud versus speaking extemporaneously. Yeah, It activates entirely different neural pathways, evidently. it's Yeah, it, it would make sense that that's a completely different beast. And it's weird because when you're physically doing that action, they don't feel very different you know, yeah. physically, but yeah. mentally, cognitively, they're very different. Our brain treats them differently the having to form new words versus reading words that have been yeah. written which is fascinating because i mean i guess that's the thing with public speaking or oration or just speaking generally right you hear some people who and this is one of those little things about acting where like everybody likes the belittle acting It's just like oh it's so easy anybody could do it you're just you're just reading aloud Yeah, well, but like, it's just like what are you doing just the memorizing scripts yeah you hear the difference all you're doing <laughs> between like a trained and untrained person yeah uh doing line reading and it's like night and day because just doing a raw line reading naturally quote unquote right is just without so sound, weird yeah. sounding without <laughs> sounding like you're reading well that's the, that's the big yeah, problem like you, like so many people just sound like they're reading a script if they just give their raw natural reading it's like that takes that takes training to be able to make that sound natural yeah that's one of the big problems with taking this back to rpgs gms who read from like the like pre-prepared, yeah, yeah, the, the pre-prepared like descriptor boxes. A lot of the times, it goes from like, and then you do all this stuff, and now I'm reading a thing to you, and it's very different, and it pulls you out of the situation a little bit right yeah and it's like it's very it, for some of those GMs, it can be very jarring it can be very jarring where it's like oh okay now we just have to wait for them to finish reading the text <laughs> now here's the thing i'm a big fan of using pre-written descriptions in yeah. cinematics but also like i would, also, hope, like, an I would hope i'm a good enough actor that uh, yeah. it doesn't take you out too much <laughs> yeah but yeah that's the thing you're a decent orator so you know the techniques to be able to make that sound natural that's and true like, yeah I, I, half the time i, I can't tell Until we're already in that it's a pre-written description. Especially since, and I would say this is, again, I've kind of learned GMing mostly through like the Matt Mercer camp and mostly Mm -hmm. just like watching and imitating and uh, seeing what I could glean from him since that was critical role was kind of one of my first big experiences with RPGs. I've seen many more since then, but that was very formative for me. But I would say, obviously, Matt Mercer being an incredible performer, GM storyteller, that's one of his big benefits is the fact that I mean, yeah, I think if you watch enough hours of Critical Role content, you can tell the difference between his pre-written yeah. line readings versus his improvised ones. But like, However, to so like the untrained ear who hasn't been consuming yeah. hundreds of hours of his content, one of his big advantages is the fact that it is kind of harder to tell than with yeah. most people just because he is such a good actor, A, yeah. and B, such an articulate speaker. Purely auditorily, you can't tell the difference between when he's going from extemporaneous to written. Mm. But the only way I can tell is when suddenly he uses a lot bigger words more often. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) And it's just like, okay, those are like, you did not come up with that on the spot. That's Mm. how I know you're reading. (laughs) But if you just listen to him, all of his speech sounds. Yeah, it's all performed. Yeah. Yeah. And which is, of course, part of being a good voice actor, like all of his improvised and written stuff all sound the same kind of performed. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, I've kind of fallen into that tradition a bit of yeah. switching back and forth between eloquent, improvised, and written, pre-written descriptors, and do a lot more pre-written dialogue as well. I've found I've really enjoyed that for certain scenarios, right. specifically for like I said, I like to create cinematics, yeah, within my games, yeah. So I, I love doing that, and it's been it's been interesting, sort of finding my voice as a GM over the years mm-hmm. through resin roleplay, most of all. But I really feel like. I'm kind of in a point now, which is why I can't wait to start running stuff again, where I found a little bit more of my voice and how I uniquely tell stories within the medium. So kind of starting hitting the ground running with a new campaign with my own style. At the start. At the start. Yeah. yeah has been will be interesting, but I guess has been interesting because I did that with Pentax, which is our home game. Right. Um. That and, nobody and has the, seen. The and, first game of uh, the first session for that was fantastic. Oh, was it? it it's well, it feels like going into. Resident Roleplay Arc 6 was definitely, without a doubt, the best arc in the show, and also, like, more than half of the show, apparently. (laughs) Yeah, it's more than half of the the total episodes. But, like, the first episode of that home game felt like one of those episodes, but at level one. (laughs) Yeah, at the start. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, and everybody, we always talk about that as a group, that, like, the Manifold Arc was everybody's favorite arc of Resident Roleplay, bar none. And I think, yeah, that was really just the point where... Not only had I solidified what my voice was, but it was also a story that had been planned for a long time mm-hmm. because it was kind of the arc that was I'd been shooting for from the right. very beginning. And we and, started with like everybody getting on the same page. Yes, we did a lot of onboarding work to make sure everybody was aware, okay, this is the style and direction it's going to be going mm-hmm. in. And then I started basically implementing all the lessons that I learned over the course of that campaign into that singular story yeah. arc. I have more it's- notes about how... We constructed that story arc in different individual video on my personal right. channel, which you should probably go watch. I'll put that in the show notes as well. I think it's a retrospect on a three-year campaign, something to that effect. Something like that. Um, Yeah, I'll link it in the show like notes. Like lessons learned from a three-year campaign or something. Yes, I believe that's what it was. Yeah. Yeah, where I go into a lot of detail of behind the scenes of yeah. creating that. That is also a just good video. If you're looking into GMing long-term campaign, that's just a good video. Learn from other GM's mistakes and lessons. That way you don't have to go through a three-year campaign to get to the end or to get to being as good as having run a three-year campaign. Oh, yeah. If that makes any sense. Uh, <laughs> well, and that's the the nature of learning generally. Yeah. It's always helpful to seek wisdom from people who had experience and made mistakes and then learn from what they have to offer. Mm-hmm. But of course, that's no substitute for gaining experience of yeah. your own. Because yeah, you can the, only absorb so much of that intellectually. Yeah. And then so much more of it has to be you making your own mistakes. Yeah, because you have to contextualize those lessons. A lesson on its own is nothing without any context. So you have to be able to say, okay, I understand why I would want to avoid these things now or why this would be a better route, even though you didn't even know what options were available at first. Which is the trouble, I think, of a lot of people who run to dungeon master advice gurus like Matt Colville. And a lot of people will take Matt Colville's lessons- like strip them of any nuance or context right. and try to apply them dogmatically. Yeah. And it just doesn't work as rules. And people like will yell at Matt Colville on Twitter or something yeah. and just be like, Hey, I did your thing and people hated it. And it was just like, it's because you know, that wasn't the right thing to do in your scenario. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. like not everything like he, he, and I like that he openly admits, but it's like definitely like a toxic element of how people interact right. with his content, where they like think Matt Colville has the right way of GMing or something. Yeah. But he there he is no really right way of doing anything. Yeah, that's just like these are all contextual lessons, and right? Also, it's like not all of it is going to be the right thing to do all the time. Yeah, and also when it comes to GMing, having ideas is not the same as being a good GM. You can absorb a ton of ideas, and it's like, oh, these are all great. I want to implement all these into a campaign. But if you implemented. Every single idea you have for a game into one campaign, that's a terrible campaign because it would just be conflicting and it would be there would be no consistency. It's exercising restraint, right? You have to know when to use what tools and having ideas just in general, having a ton of ideas is not a replacement for being a good GM. Yeah. And that's the creative process generally, I think, is learning creative restraint, right? There are so many things that you need to limit. And there's so many things that you could put in. And it's the limitations that really define what your art is going to be in the absence of limitation. Who was it who said that absence of limitations is the enemy of creativity. Uh, yeah, somebody said that somebody said that, but it's 100% true, right? You need limitations creatively, because if you have no moderation of what you're putting in, then you're just going to create some sort of a mess. You need a focus, you need a theme, you need principles. To guide every individual piece that you're working on, whatever it may be. Yeah. So that it has its own identity. Right. And you can't just throw everything you have at it and there's hope something else comes out of it. You have to start at the beginning with a clear and concise idea of where you want to take it. And then, of course, after that point, it can start to develop its own identity. But you have to start with something. If you start with nothing, it will be a conglomeration of half-baked ideas. Yeah. Just everything all at once. Everything all at once everywhere. Which is not good. Can't just throw a, you know, throw everything you know into a hopper and expect good art to come out of it. Okay, how so, did we get a, how did we end up on RPGs? <laughs> I don't know. We always eventually end up on RPGs Usually. I think that's kind of the thing. We're also I don't know compulsive game designers and character creators. Yeah. And like, <laughs> inevitably we will end up talking shop for tabletop RPG design yeah. at some point or character ideas or, or what have you or campaign ideas so Always an inevitability. I was talking a little bit after I go to a local D&D game every Wednesday. Uh, uh, at a comic after, shop. Yeah, at the comic shop. And I run one of the tables. Recently, I started running one of the tables. And after that game, we were talking about like games you want to play. And I, I brought up Avatar. Oh, Avatar Legends. And I was like, man, I really want to play that. But there's so many other things I also want to play. (laughs) And then on the way home, I came up with an idea for a game. (laughs) (laughs) Like, that's just the kind of thing that happens. You talk about it and then eventually like, you know, for an avatar game or for for an avatar campaign. Uh, Like I, I started formulating some hooks and stuff within the setting to okay, I think I can, I think I can get this to work. Yeah, and like I don't, I don't even know what I'm gonna play Avatar. (laughs) Why is this happening to me? (laughs) I have, I have more pressing games that are happening. Like literally today, I'm gonna be running a game, (laughs) and I I don't have anything for it. (laughs) That's not true. I'm running a, I'm running an old one-shot that I run. Are you doing the labyrinth again? I'm not doing the labyrinth. I already ran the labyrinth for this group. (laughs) Oh, all right. No, I'm doing a different. Yeah, they already went through the labyrinth. No, I'm running a different one shot. Uh, you were also in this one shot. It was the bad one. One of the bad ones. I had several bad early <laughs> one shots. I'm fixing it. Ah. Take the general idea of it and go game design. Yeah. Because I did not do that the first time. We <laughs> do still need to run Avatar for our group, though. I do. We need to stream that at one point. So the Avatar Legends RPG is pretty cool, but it. So we kickstarted that one. Right. Well, it's now one of the highest funded Kickstarters by the time it closed of all time. But yeah, I I managed to get in on the Kickstarter on that. Right. And so we have an early edition of the rulebook as of this recording. So that's pretty cool. Now, I think, well, let's see when this comes out. This will be a few weeks time from the time of this recording. By the time you hear it, I don't know if the uh, official rulebook will be available for purchase publicly by that time. Yeah. But we'll see. It's pretty neat being able to take a gander at it before everybody else does because you yeah. definitely won't be able to <laughs> learn it within the exclusivity period i think just because we're so darn busy but you do i i have been pressing you to run an avatar game for us just because you know the most i love that setting the, about that lore yeah. between the two of us i love that setting yeah i've got i've got character ideas for sure it would depend on what era we got to go with, though. Yeah. Obviously, the first thing that, that happens when you bring up running a new campaign, everyone's like, I want to be in it. And the kinds of, like, the way people interact with that setting in general are, are awesome. Yeah. Uh, because there's, there's so much. It's a very complete setting. And hearing different people uh, interact with it, like, obviously, outside of our friend group, like, I, I know all of our friends. And I know kind of how they think and how they interact with fiction. So I can pretty much, anything they say about, like, how they want to play, like, in, in the Avatar world, I can guess. But new people talking about this thing that I'm very familiar with, I'm like, huh, you know, like, that's not even a part of the the world that I really latched onto, that you just completely, you're like, oh, I love this one specific bit. Yeah. And oh, just new people talking about things that I like. It was very fascinating. It was a very fascinating conversation after that game. We definitely stayed uh, way too long past closing, <laughs> oh, <laughs> just yeah. talking about, like, <laughs> Avatar and games and Magic the Gathering. Yeah. Yeah. I really want to get a general like online table going for just people to drop in and be able to play one shots or things of any system at any time going at some point soon because I have way too many people wanting to play at my table. Right. You're becoming a popular GM. It's... I was gonna say it's not intentional, but it kind of was. Uh, I wish I was a popular GM. You are, but like, <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm not in demand. I was, I was gonna say nobody like, wants me to GM for them. Well, it's because you already are. <laughs> that's the problem. Like, you've already established yourself as like our GM. Well, I mean, that's one group, though. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, uh, that's not that's not very widespread. Just because I I go to one other gaming group. You've got like several other. You've like right, right. an entirely different one today. That's true. I have three gaming groups that, I, that are going on right now. Yeah. And I'm jamming in all of them. <laughs> Either way. Oh, yeah. So in the first episode. Very first episode. Of this podcast, you briefly discussed a hypothetical podcast right. called Schrodinger's Podcast. Yes. So I don't know if this counts as Schrodinger's Podcast. Yeah. Um, ideas. I was inspired by, I'll admit. I mostly ripped this off somebody else that I saw spitballing sci-fi ideas. Oh. And I was like, that's fantastic. I like that idea. And then Schrodinger's podcast popped up and I was like, ooh, that could apply. So this is an existential crisis in a can. (laughs) Oh, boy. One of my favorite kind of cans. Do I have to credit who you're stealing this idea from? I'm stealing this uh, unabashedly from Tom Scott's 14 science fiction stories in under six minutes, which are ideas that he has that are not substantial enough to be turned into an actual video. All right. Who's Tom Scott? Tom Scott. He is a, I want to say, a science presenter. I think just out of general science. He just does a lot of stuff. He does weird things. Um, he does... Have I seen his face? You probably have. I'm going to show you a picture yeah, of his face. Yeah, show me a picture of his face. Oh, yeah. I know that guy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He looks like a Tom Scott. He does look like a Tom. Specifically he, a Tom Scott. A Tom Scott. He's one of those people who occupied that age range between like 20 and 40. Yeah. <laughs> between like 20 and 60. Maybe. Yeah. So... At some point in the far distant future, a company is trying to start a podcast, but they don't know exactly what kind of podcast they want to do. So they have to create a kind of test group for, you know, podcasts. Like, okay, what's the best, most marketable podcast we can make, right? Right. So what they do is they simulate- As you do if you're a big corporate. As you do, because you can just like decide. Yeah, focus groups. Yeah, focus groups. This is sufficiently far in the future that creating artificial intelligence is- An option. No problem for them. So what they do is simulate millions of- variations of podcasts and show them to millions of variations of artificial intelligence and see which ones they like the best. However, it becomes clear over the course of listening to this podcast that you are an artificial intelligence Ah. and you are listening to this podcast. And unless you are satisfied with this podcast, they are going to decommission you and you will not survive to the next round of tests. Oh no. Is that Schrodinger's podcast? I don't know. Maybe. Well, it's not even that the podcast exists or doesn't exist. Like, it's like, it's you. You, you. Yeah. you, know, you exist or don't exist yeah. based you, on the podcast. Listener are, <laughs> like you, listener, are an are artificial intelligence listening to one variation of several podcasts. And if you are satisfied, I guess you'll have kids. And <laughs> your, your, your generation will help to focus which kind of podcast this company goes into. But if you don't, you're a completely sentient, functional AI, artificial intelligence. And you're just like a pawn. And you have to like this video <laughs> or yeah, like, this, like this podcast. It could be a video podcast. It could be, but that would be more expensive to simulate. Yeah. Now, obviously, yeah, obviously, the the original video idea into the original video was a ad. I think. Oh, an advertisement, something like that. Hmm. All right. Well, with that existential crisis, uh, let's go into a segment, shall we? Sure. Did you know? So, at some point recently, I got a humidifier. It's just it right. sitting in my room and you saw it at one point and were like, what the heck is that? And I was like, <laughs> it's a humidifier. That was basically the end of the conversation. But I pointed at a humidistat, which was a fantastic little analog device for measuring humidity in the air. So That was attached to the humidifier. It was not attached. It's a separate object. It was separate from the humidifier. <laughs> yes. Okay. It's a tiny little plastic thing that just tells you what the humidity of the surrounding environment I'm rebuilding is. rebuilding the scene in my head. Right. But you know how a thermometer measures ambient temperature, heat. Without any electronics, right? Right, right. Well, I'm honestly not sure how the electronic ones work. That's actually That, to be kind, be fair. Of, that kind of blows my mind <laughs> yeah. now that I'm thinking about well, it. But really, I know how those ones that are filled with, what is it? Mercury? mercury? They used to be filled with mercury. They used I think to be filled with, with mercury. I assume now. it's something not toxic now. Yeah, yeah, because I guess kids are putting it in their mouth or something. Standards. But- yeah, I, I get how those work, just because that's just a pure chemical reaction. Right. So technically, the electronic ones are also that, but at a smaller scale, and they just, they just read analog fluctuations as digital output. Yeah, but how? With, like, wires and stuff. What conducts this thermal energy that's in the air that in such a way that it can be read? There's something that expands and contracts with heat, and there's a sensor on it, That uh, as it expands, it can detect the pressure of it expanding or like it's just its movement and then translate that into uh, using math of how much energy it would require to, you know, expand or contract that object or that fluid or material. Okay. Makes sense. And then it converts it into a number. Interesting. A humidistat, analog humidistat, does something similar in terms of interacting with its environment and producing a number, right? Do you know how it does that? No idea. I haven't the slightest clue how you can possibly measure the humidity in the air. So there is a thing called a bimaterial loop or a bimetallic loop. uh, I don't think it's metallic in the case of a humidistat, but there are things that are bimetallic loops. What they are is two pieces of metal smushed together, one on one face and another on the other face. They have two different properties, right? I believe in a humidistat, it's a piece of metal, like aluminum or something, something non-reactive, and then basically paper. On the other end, and the more humid the air is around it, will affect that paper. It will shrink or expand in a predictable manner. So when it shrinks, because it's glued to that piece of metal, the metal will bend. Hmm. And so the whole loop, that's basically a coil of this biometallic strip inside of the the thing, as the air around it gets more and less saturated with water, the piece of paper that that metal is like glued to will change and it'll bend. And they can translate that motion into a like gauge that tells you how much pressure based on a function of how much water in the air it would require to move the paper that much. Wow. So that piece of metal must be very malleable. It's very thin. It's like a very, very thin piece of like aluminum or something like that. Something non-reactive. Something that wouldn't, you know, be affected by change in temperature or change in humidity in the air. Wow. But the paper is. But the paper is. And so when that moves, because they're connected together, they're glued together, the whole coil expands and contracts. Wow fascinating and then to make analog that's just tied to like a lever that's literally just the pointer needle just a along. spring yeah wow so that's humidity another fun fact about humidity do you know how we as humans interact with humidity like how we feel it makes you sweaty it kind of it does so it makes well, you feel sweaty is what it does it makes <laughs> me feel sweaty so humidity is of course the saturation of water in the air right mm-hmm. when it gets hotter that means more water can get in the air because of physics. I don't know exactly why. Nope, don't know exactly why, and I'm not going to pretend I do. <laughs> <laughs> and when it gets colder, a lot of moisture gets pulled out of the air, and a lot less water can fill a space before it's at like 100% humidity. So as humans, when we interact with humidity, the hotter something gets, the more water can fit in that air, right? To us, we feel that as actually less humid. Wait, what? Run that by me again. When something gets hotter, more water can saturate that air, right? Why? Because of physics <laughs> Okay. let so set that to be true. When it gets hotter, more water can fit into that air. So what that means is with the same amount of water in the air, if it gets hotter, that amount of water becomes a smaller percent of the air that it's filled. So if it's at 50% humidity, if it gets hotter, it actually, the humidity percentage will drop because the same amount of water is filling up less of the space. Hmm. So So like changes so the density of the, the, the water. Exactly. Per Million or whatever. Which means we perceive that as less humid. And when it gets colder, it actually gets more humid because now more of that water is filling up the space that is available. So what's the actual humidity? Completely arbitrary. (laughs) So that's the thing. We don't interact with humidity in a... Like 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 in in any meaningful sense? In a linear, predictable way. It's purely how you feel it is just like the temperature is fluctuating up and down and we feel it completely different. Things can feel more humid in an area, even though it may actually have less water. Wow. That's crazy. That's crazy. I don't even want to think about that. We've gone back and forth between living in like really humid environments yeah. and not very humid environments throughout our lives. Yeah. <laughs> I guess you'll probably yeah, be this going has... back to several humid environments. Oh my gosh. H- humid environments tra- in your coming travels. I'm going straight to uh, very humid very quickly. Yeah. Well, for listeners, I am going to be uh, leaving my current living situation very shortly and moving to a completely different country for a little bit on the other side of the hemisphere, which means... The seasons are going to switch. Right. So if we're going across into, the date line too. Oh my God, dude, looking at my flights is breaking my brain. <laughs> are you going to travel through time? Yes. <laughs> yes. Like at some point I'm taking a three hour plane trip and I'm, I'm only going from like 12 to one. <laughs> yeah. It's like, no, what's happen. going on? That's, that's for your first trip. Yeah. So I'm, I'm going to be moving uh, into another hemisphere, the Southern hemisphere, changing date lines, changing seasons. So if we're going into what season next? We're about to go into, well, we're, I think spring is basically just beginning. Yeah, we just got into spring. And then it's going into summer. So that means I'm going into fall and then heading into winter. Yeah. I just just got out of winter. You're going to get back to back winter. Man, I don't know if I like that or not. I like the cold. Well, you should like it. I'm going to you're, gonna, you're, you're <laughs> weathered and you're going to like it. Yeah, that's going to be a fascinating experience. Well, again, you're going to be in a number of different places. So you'll yeah, get and then after that, you'll I'm get going, a double whammy. I'm, of, a, yeah, yeah. yeah. So you'll be going from like one two punch going into spring and summer to going into spring and summer where it actually feels like spring and summer. <laughs> yeah. To going into fall and winter all within a very short span of time. Yeah. <laughs> well, it will basically be going into hard winter for the duration of your stay, I think. I think so. I'm not yeah, sure. Yeah. yeah. So this is gonna be it's gonna be the the gamut. Yeah. Well, anyway, I think that's the most we can say about that and humidity, uh, while not specifying anything right <laughs> about well, where course, you're going. But. Yeah. Like once everything starts getting going, I can talk more openly about it. But oh, no doubt you'll be sharing a lot of that stuff of uh, on your various media feeds as well I'm sure follow me on my social medias oh hey shout outs to social medias we've <laughs> we have never done that before. we've never done that I don't if think you... we have ever ever in the history of p cubed attempted to plug <laughs> any social media hey, in follow any me on Twitter capacity <laughs> yeah that's <laughs> I, I'm gonna I'm going to start obviously I want to start traveling more we often. probably should I don't know is that a good idea I think it'll because we don't necessarily use our social medias for anything other than work i don't know we share some stuff some stuff oh, yeah. yeah, look, like, okay, that's true it's, more it's often. fun like yeah. it, well, we don't engage with it very actively just because yeah. like we have healthier relationships with our social yeah. media than that <laughs> but when we do post you know it's always i, I try to make sure at least it's i don't news. know what your social media yeah. habit is habits are i should say but my social media habits are more so like I like to tweet like event tweets. Exactly. You know what like, I mean? Me. <laughs> I don't want it to be of me. Yeah, exactly. News of the me. I don't want it to be just willy-nilly blogging tweets. Right. You know what I mean? It needs to be something meaningful and substantial or promotional, one or the other. Yeah, I don't want to treat a public outlet like a journal because that's not what it's for. Exactly. And also that's not healthy to yell into the void like that, Uh, your personal, very personal thoughts and opinions. Uh, Yeah. That's something that should be Because that just makes everybody else that's reading it feel weird too. It is also true. Like it's, it, it is literally of no benefit to anybody except yourself. Yeah. And like the fact that it's, if you're putting... Yeah, just that kind of stuff out there for a very public audience to yeah. see. That is a very well an, an inherently kind of self-centered approach, I yes. suppose. But that is kind of where we're going in terms of That's true. People enjoy media. being Okay, this is we're gonna get into a whole thing. Yeah, media yeah let's, if we don't stop. Let's <laughs> close the can of worms and wind this podcast to its close, I say. So thank you very much again for potting with me. This was fun. I always have fun doing the hypercube podcast. Hopefully we could bring on some guests soon. That verb sounds very wrong. Potting. <laughs> yeah, I got that from the Green Brothers. That's how they put it. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, I'm sure there are other people that use that as a verb of as well. But that's where I mostly know it from. Potting. 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 It's an activity. just sounds too much like potty. They say that's what you call a uh, group of men in L.A. A pod? A podcast. Oh. <laughs> that's fair. Right, that's right. Fair. You know, kind of like yeah. a group of ravens murdering yep. have all these various same yeah, yeah. Anyway. That's so fair. Uh, Yeah. Thank you all very much for listening. This has been the Hypercube Podcast. This show is mixed and edited by Rafael Pacheco with original theme music by Mono Memory. Until next time, we'll see y'all later. God bless. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> I need to come up with something. I do haven't come up with anything. Worse. <laughs> it's getting worse. <laughs>